0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. Today I'm going to tell you about Lisa Carlson. She was 27 when she'd been shot during what looked like a possible robbery home invasion. The mother of two appeared to be in the midst of self-pleasure when she was ambushed and murdered. To be more specific, there was a porno pause in the VHS player and Lisa had her britches unzipped with a vibrator in her hand. As salacious as that headline sounds, especially for the year 1998, nothing about this crime scene is what it seems. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning in to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and if you haven't already, go follow me on Facebook. My Facebook page is called Storytime Slayer. And that's where I'm going to post photos, videos, and more information coincided with these cases. I'm also on Instagram at story underscore time underscore Slayer. You can find me on YouTube, Storytime Slayer. I'm just now jumping on the YouTube train, so bear with me. It is rough, chugga chugga, but it's coming along. Okay, leave me a five-star review, and then we will jump into today's story. So, it is July 18th, 1998, when 911 gets a phone call around 9 p.m. from a David Carlson. He's calling from Kapowson, Washington, which is in Pierce County, Washington, about 25 miles southeast of Tacoma and an hour from Seattle. It's in a really rural area. So David calls 911 and he says, in a very, very chillingly calm voice, I think my wife's been murdered. And then he basically gives the operator his alibi. He says, I was at work. My mom called me because my toddlers, they have two twin boys, wandered over to my mom's house, but my mom could not get a hold of my wife. Then he very calmly tells the operator how he left work, drove home, and he has come into his home to find his wife murdered and covered in blood, potentially shot or stabbed. Police arrive and they find Lisa on the couch. She's been shot two times in the head and one time in the chest. There is blood everywhere and at first sight all they see is Lisa looked to have been laying on the sofa and she has a blanket pulled up to her chest. An officer talks to Dan to understand exactly what's happened leading up to this 911 call. Dan says he got a call from his mom, Carol, at about 8 p.m. that his three-year-old twin boys wandered to her house without Lisa hours earlier. I'll go into more detail later, but Dan and his wife, Lisa, live next door to Dan's parents. And when Dan and Lisa's twin boys wandered to Carol's house alone, Carol had tried to call Lisa several times, but she got no answer. So Carol called Dan and said she needed him to leave work and go check on his wife because the twins wandered over and hello, He can't, she can't get a hold of her. Carol and her daughter-in-law, Lisa, had a very strained relationship and Lisa just didn't like Carol coming over. So Dan leaves work. It's about a 45 minute to an hour drive. He gets to his house a little bit after nine. He said when he walked up to the house, he could see that the front door was slightly ajar. And when he walked in, that was when he saw Lisa's head covered in blood and he immediately stepped out and called 911. And here we are. Of course, Dan being the spouse, the suspect number one, but police asked Dan if he knew of anyone who would have wanted to do this and Dan had no idea. Another thing that was kind of suspicious to police was that Dan had basically given his alibi to the 911 operator. He was extremely calm too, not only during the 911 call, but whenever they were speaking with him um he told police that they needed to check his answering machine and asked if he could grab his clothes from the dryer before he left okay so police think this could have possibly been some sort of robbery that got interrupted or went wrong but they aren't sure and the reason they think that is because the house is disheveled especially Lisa's bedroom and they start to canvas the crime scene when they remove the blanket from Lisa's body that is when they made the shocking discovery that she was naked from the waist down and had a vibrator with a remote connected to it the tv in the living room was on and it had a VHS and the VCR player Okay, you young kids, y'all got to Google that. Y'all are on your own on that. So in this VHS player is a triple X porn that is paused. And so to the naked eye, it would appear that Lisa was murdered while she was masturbating. Police go next door to speak with Carol. And according to Carol, the twin boys came to her house alone a little after six to six thirty ish. She said she didn't go check on Lisa because she was banned from Lisa's, and she assumed that Lisa must have fallen asleep. She tried to call Lisa and leave her multiple voicemails, but again, she couldn't get a hold of her, and she felt uncomfortable going to check on her. By the way, Carol and Lisa live 100 yards away from each other. Lisa and Dan, and I'll explain this, but they live on Carol's property, and it's literally 100 yards away. So around 8 p.m. Carol decides to call Dan to come home and check on Lisa himself. Carol said she did not hear any gunshots all afternoon. Police's initial theory is that Lisa was murdered that day sometime after 4 p.m. and a potential robbery gone wrong. But it just seems like something isn't quite right. Especially when Dan confirmed that nothing was actually missing from their home. The home had been completely ransacked, turned upside down. Lisa in Dan's bedroom was the worst yet Lisa's jewelry box was completely undisturbed they also had an issue with the location see Lisa's and Dan's home was in an extremely rural and unconventional area for a random robbery not only do Dan and Lisa live in bumfuck Egypt but the house that they live in is literally at the end of a two mile long dead end road so right not just somewhere you ran across by chance Police are totally unsure what they're overlooking, and they collect all the evidence, including the answering machine, Lisa's computer, a couple twenty-two caliber shell casings, and then they send Lisa's body to the medical examiner. In the initial interview police had with Dan, Dan is extremely, extremely cool, calm, and collected. He informed officers that although he and Lisa were still living together, they were very much separated because Lisa was having an affair with his best friend, Sean, his best friend since high school. Of course police now need to pay Sean a visit. Before I tell you about their visit though I just want to let you know when they listened to the answering machine it had nothing but voicemails from Carol on it and it seemed like the tape had been tampered with. Okay we'll pick that back up later. So police go to Lisa's lover's house and Sean was clearly anticipating their arrival. Lisa's family had already informed Sean that Lisa was dead because Lisa and Sean were first having an affair and then they actually began having a real relationship when Lisa and Dan separated. And so Lisa's family knew all about Sean. Sean was visibly shaken up and upset at Lisa's death and police said that Sean was chain smoking and he just seemed very, very anxious and uneasy to them. According to him, the last time he'd seen Lisa was the morning before the murder, but not at her house. Um, Sean actually hadn't been to her place in three months. Sean did confirm, yes, they were in a relationship. It started off as a friendship, turned into an affair, and then became in a relationship. Sean said Lisa was just so isolated and lonely, he became her main confidant, and they just began developing deep feelings for one another, and it just sort of went from there. So police obviously can't just take this guy at his word he would for sure be a suspect now but he actually had a good alibi see he could produce time-stamped online correspondences he had because he'd been (laughs) I guess talking to people on the internet all day on July 18th after Lisa left his house Sean also had lots of correspondence between him and Lisa to corroborate their affairs and plans to be together Sean had one more really important thing in his possession that might interest police. A tape that Lisa recorded and asked him to hold on to if he should ever need it if something happened to her. See... There was a physical altercation between Dan and Lisa where Dan strangled Lisa. And then after it took place, she began recording him. And in the recording, Dan admits that he put his hands on Lisa around her throat like he would strangle her. However, he maintains in this recording, but I didn't apply pressure. Like I didn't apply pressure. It doesn't count. According to Sean, he had this recording because Lisa was terribly afraid of, Of Dan. She was afraid for her life. Let me give you a little backstory now. So, Lisa was a vivacious woman who'd grown up traveling the world because her dad was in the military. So, Lisa was a military brat. She is said to have made friends really easily and had adventurous and a friendly spirit. Everybody really liked Lisa, from what I gathered. She settled in Tacoma in her early 20s, and that is when she met Dan. Dan was going to nursing school at the time. He was very smart. But unlike Lisa, he was not bubbly. He was not overly vivacious. He was very quiet, reserved, and subdued. The relationship is said to have been a real opposites attract sort of thing. So Lisa was actually Dan's first real girlfriend and he was totally smitten. Within a year of meeting the couple actually gets married in 1994 and in 1995 Lisa gave birth to the twin boys and she took to motherhood effortlessly. Lisa became a stay at home mom and that's when everything changed drastically in her life. Dan had just started his career in nursing, so he wasn't making a lot of money, and the single income is what they were living off of, and it wasn't much, y'all. Dan ends up getting a shit ton of credit cards to make ends meet, and we all know that never really works out. Um, so in 1997, Dan and Lisa end up moving onto Dan's parents' property in the middle of Bunfuck, Egypt. So before this, Lisa and Dan lived closer to Tacoma and in a more city setting, but this is how they end up out in Kapausen. Dan's parents had a heavily wooded plot of land, and what they did was they moved a second mobile home onto the property, and that's what Dan, Lisa, and the boys lived in. It was only 100 yards away from Dan's parents' trailer, but again, the woods on the property were really thick, so there was, you know, 100 100 yards of really thick forest to go through. Lisa was not really thrilled about this, but the couple's financial disparity gave them really no other option. It seemed like a really great idea at first because Dan's mother, Carol, could help Lisa with the boys. Dan was closer to his job and it was somewhere that Dan and Lisa could actually afford to save money. Well... Then Sean gets introduced to Lisa, and like I said, Sean was a really longtime childhood friend of Dan's. He would come and hang out with Lisa and Dan almost every day, and as much as Dan worked, that meant that Sean was spending an awful lot of time alone with Lisa, and in 1997, the internet starts really taking off off y'all it is booming so Sean taught Lisa how to use her computer and how to log into what was called bulletins and bulletins are essentially the prehistoric chat room this is before AOL and what we would do is you would log into your computer dial up post a message to the bulletin and then log off so that somebody else can log in and post back Of course, we know where this is going, right? Lisa moved into a rural country setting. She's fairly isolated and lonely. She's now engaging in online conversation and hanging out with Sean. So Lisa and Sean become very close. And Sean says that Lisa told him things between her and Dan's mother, Carol, were not on good terms so Carol had a tendency to just pop up at Lisa's trailer and visit the kids whenever she wanted to and she would literally just like walk in Lisa found Carol to be totally overbearing totally overbearing especially about the boys so when Lisa tried to talk to Dan about his mom Dan always sided with his mom and asked Lisa to just go along with whatever Carol wanted and Lisa thought that's some bullshit and I'm not doing that So nothing seems to get easier. Dan and Lisa end up filing bankruptcy and their relationship just begins to dissolve. On top of everything, according to Sean in an interview he did with a show called The 1990s Deadliest Decade. Love that show. The property they lived on was extremely rural. Like I said, it's at a very end of a two mile dead end road. And Lisa hated the isolation, especially with her only neighbor being her damn mother-in-law and they don't even get along. The stress was mounting, it's emotional, financially, and eventually it becomes physical between Lisa and Dan. And that is what caused Lisa and Dan to separate. So as of November 1997, Lisa and Dan agreed to separate and they actually write out and sign a separation agreement, but it's contingent that they still live together and that is so that Lisa can watch the kids during the day and Dan would keep the kids at night. The couple... Began sleeping in separate rooms. And then that is when Lisa began having a romantic relationship with Sean according to Sean. And apparently this relationship wasn't like a secret. Um, They were just extremely, extremely respectful. So that way they weren't like rubbing it in anybody's face. Um, according to Sean it was a serious relationship though and in fact him and Lisa had been discussing relocating to Arizona for a long time to start their life together because Sean had family in Arizona so this is must have all started heating up in like the fall and early winter of 1997 because that's when Dan and Lisa be decided to separate And the reason that Dan and Lisa did not divorce immediately is because they were in the middle of their bankruptcy and you cannot get divorced during a bankruptcy filing. So Sean and Lisa are just waiting it out for this bankruptcy to go through. And according to Sean, the last time he'd seen Lisa again was July 18th, the morning that she was killed. Lisa had stayed overnight, according to Sean, on the 17th. Sean had been urging Lisa to move out because the living situation became so unsafe for her. And the last time they saw each other, Lisa told Sean, you know what? I am going to move out and I'm going to tell Dan tonight Lisa's plan was to go home pack up her things and the kids and then go to her mom's house around three in the afternoon so Lisa told Sean when she gets to her mom's that she's going to call him he'll come to meet her at her mother's house and then they'll gonna go to Arizona and live happily ever after so now that we all know who everybody is how they're involved and how this ends I want to circle back to Sean's interview Sean tells police that he thinks he knows who hurt Lisa because he has seen this person put their hands on her before. It was Daryl. Daryl was Lisa's father-in-law, Carol's husband, Dan's dad. And according to Sean, Lisa invited him over to her house in February of 1998, just months before the murder. They're watching TV and while Lisa's folding laundry, suddenly Carol storms in through Lisa's front door and just starts going on off on Lisa saying shit that you're betraying Dan and the two women have a verbal argument and then Carol storms off. The next thing you know, Daryl comes through Lisa's front door and he actually puts his hands around Lisa's neck and starts strangling her. So Lisa yells to Sean call 911, call 911, and Daryl immediately stops choking Lisa and he says, "Oh, You're dressed like Daryl thought he was going to walk in on Sean and Lisa, like having sex in the living room or something. Regardless, Lisa, they did call 911 and she pressed charges and Daryl is arrested for domestic assault. So with Sean ruled out, the police are now putting all their efforts into focusing on the Carlson's. Dan, his mother Carol, and I think Daryl was actually his stepfather. I don't know why I think that. I really can't remember where I read that. So police get a search warrant for Carol and Daryl's home, anticipating that Daryl may being the perpetrator of this murder. They were honestly looking for a twenty-two caliber weapon. And they actually came across something more damning and interesting. They found journals belonging to Carol that literally were tracking what Lisa was doing all day. It was like a spy log. What time she gets home, what time she leaves, if she had any visitors, what she was doing outside with the boys, just anything Carol can see that Lisa is doing from her house, which is really weird. So she's obviously spying on Lisa and she even comments on Lisa's housekeeping skills in these journals. And these journals start to progress and they actually tell a lot of complaints that Carol had about Lisa. These journals are the only thing, though, that police find in connection to Lisa in the Carlson's home. And when they look at Daryl, they find that he actually has a solid alibi for when Lisa died. Daryl was at work. Police now got to circle back to Dan. They've ruled out Sean, they've ruled out Daryl, and now they need to either rule out or further investigate the husband, Dan. Going back to the tape Sean had of Dan admitting to putting his hands on Lisa, police go and talk with Lisa's past co-workers and just people who knew the couple. Some said that Lisa did in fact have bruises on her arms and different parts on her body and she would just flat out admit that they were from dan she did not deny that dan had put his hands on her multiple times so that's pretty significant right now as of yet there has been little to no useful evidence at the crime scene there's no substantial fingerprints and the police cannot locate a 22 caliber weapon used in this crime DNA technology is a relatively new tool but it's not really helpful in this case because the police believe that their killer was Dan and his DNA would be everywhere (sighs) I always say just check you know just go ahead and do a few samples instead police decide to look at the blood and blood splatter evidence they consulted an expert in blood splatter and an fbi behavioral profile analyst and what they did was completely reconstruct this crime scene using the actual sofa lisa was found murdered on and listen up, y'all, because this is just damn good investigative knowledge at work here. The experts spend months studying the crime scene, looking over photos, the autopsy, everything. They recreate the scene using the exact couch in the Pierce County Sheriff Department's basement. They even dress a woman in similar size and structure to Lisa in all protective white clothing and stage her just how they found Lisa. And what they discovered was that there was blood splatter at the scene that did not match with where Lisa's body was line police trace the blood splatter projection back to the actual point of origin to which Lisa was shot and what they found is that Lisa was actually sitting up when she was shot she was sitting up and she was facing her shooter so then whomever shot her drug her body to the other side of the sofa And on the sofa was a bloody handprint. And when police went to shift their model's body to stage her the way Lisa had been, it was apparent that the killer had placed their own bloody handprint on the couch because they needed leverage to move this dead weight. So now police are wondering, okay, well, why was her corpse moved after she'd been shot three times? If they could understand this, this could help them figure out their killer and their killer's motive. So I said to the naked eye, it looked like Lisa had been masturbating, but police now know that Lisa was shot sitting up facing her killer on the opposite side of the sofa from which her body was found laying down with a vibrator. So with this fresh eyes and fresh perspective, they noted that there was blood on the sex toy and the remote that would not have gotten there, okay, because the gunshot wound that Lisa sustained would have immediately incapacitated her, meaning that she could not have adjusted herself, moved the blanket, put the sex toy where it was, touched the remote, none of that, and gotten blood on it. Seeing how there was a blanket over Lisa's waist, there would be no reason or way for her to have gotten blood on the sex toy post-mortem, even if she actually had been using it when she died. The only way for Lisa's blood to get on that toy in remote would be from whoever staged her body and made it look like she was doing that as a way to further humiliate her. And another thing is, you know, when a VHS tape reaches the end, it will automatically rewind itself to the beginning This tape was paused right in the middle and it would seem as if somebody wanted to do this to actually make it look like Lisa died masturbating as a way to try and humiliate her. And who would want to do that? Who would want to do that? So police have a hunch that Dan killed Lisa, but they have no definitive evidence. No actual fingerprints are left at the scene. DNA is a fruitless thing in this situation and police just don't have the weapon. However, after months of waiting, Lisa's computer activity analysis comes back. And around 3.40 p.m. that day, somebody had made several failed attempts to access Lisa's email account. And it couldn't have been Dan because he was at work. So police are like, what the fuck? And then they remember that when they spoke to Lisa's mom, Donna, she had told police that she tried to call Lisa several times that day. Because remember, Lisa was supposed to come over at 3 p.m. with the boys and she was leaving Dan. Well, when police had checked Lisa and Dan's answering machine, they never heard any voicemails from Lisa's mom. Donna insisted that she'd left voicemails on the phone, even as late as 620. But like I said, when police checked the answering machine, all they heard was voicemails from Dan's mom, Carol. So, police sent this answering machine to an FBI agent that could check for tampering. The FBI agent said, Yes, a tape had clearly been rewound and taped over. That's not the strongest evidence to me, though, because I mean, people do that. They would rewind tapes and retape over them for their voicemail, I think. Makes sense. But there's only one person in this story who could have done it and didn't have an alibi. Carol, Dan's mom. And when police go and speak with her, they ask her specifically about how the three year old twin boys wandered to her home. She said that they wandered through the woods connected between her and Dan's homes. These woods are very thick, extremely dense. There is no walkway, there is no pathway between the homes. And the boys had never walked through the woods before. So it just doesn't really seem that plausible. Plus, when the police went through Carol's journals, at the first journals, they were strictly spy notes, the first few. As they progressed and went on, Carol started venting heavily about the problems between Lisa and Dan, as well as the issues between Carol and Lisa. So Carol's entire motive and the resentment leading up to the crime is literally written in black and white for the police carol had ample time motive and opportunity she had a burning hatred for lisa that was just growing in these diaries so police arrest both carol and dan and it takes a couple years to compile and organize all the evidence but here's what police's final theory is Dan was a total mama's boy. The dynamic between Dan and his mom is literally what drew a wedge between Dan and Lisa. And when Lisa told Dan that she's going to leave him and take the boys, Dan shoots Lisa in a fit of rage right before he has to go to work so that he has an alibi. He tells his mom and she agrees to go to Dan and Lisa's home, stage it to look like a robbery. And in the middle of that, she decided to go ahead and try and humiliate Lisa by posing her body in such a way. Then Carol tries to log into Lisa's email because she was going to send a few emails to make it look like she was alive shortly after Dan went to work but Carol could not access Lisa's email. So instead she just rewound the voicemail tape and left a bunch of recordings around the time that she knew Dan was supposed to be at work to try and give herself an alibi that she was at her house all day long and that it happened after Dan went to work. February of 2003, Carol and Dan go to court All the evidence was presented in trial, and at the end of the state's case, they produced an unexpected witness, the wife of Dan's best friend, and she said that Dan admitted once to staging his wife's body to his best friend. Carol and Dan were both convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 37 years in prison. The judge said that if it were within his power, he'd give them 200 years. Now, both of them appealed their sentences and their convictions were actually overturned. Of course, police still pursued charges, but to play it safe, both Dan and Carol pled guilty the second time round. Carol pled guilty to three counts of second degree assault and one count of sexually violating human remains, while Daniel pled guilty to second degree murder. Carol was sentenced to nine years, so she was released in 2008, and Daniel's sentence was reduced to 23 years in prison. He was actually supposed to be released this year, 2022, and I think he was because I tried to look him up in the Washington DOC, and he's not listed as a current inmate, so either that or he's in PC, protective custody. This case blew my mind, and I think it blew my mind because... At first, I was like, yeah, Dan staged this. He did this. But then when I found out it was the mom, I was like, wow, that's so, that's low, man. Lisa's parents, I think, have custody of the twin boys, but the parents of Dan are granted visitations. It must be so hard for Lisa's parents to know that Dan's parents see those kids but Lisa's dad said that he celebrates her life and I thought that was really beautiful so anyway guys thanks so much for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week bye